Hello and welcome to The Crumb, a podcast from Bake From Scratch magazine. We're here to talk baking in all forms, the people, the culture, and the baked goods that make us run to preheat our oven. Hello, welcome back to The Crumb. It's Kyle Grace Mills, the associate editor at Bake From Scratch magazine. And I'm Brian Hart Hoffman, editor-in-chief of Bake From Scratch magazine. It is so exciting to be back. And today we have an amazing guest on to continue our conversation that we started in our last episode with Amanda Faber. But before we get to that, we need to talk about what we've been baking. So Kyle Grace, what, what's been in your kitchen? So it is summertime, which means it's time for a little bit something cool, a little bit crunchy. Something that you can kind of low and slow in the oven. So I made a vanilla pavlova with a vanilla speckled mascarpone cream and macerated berries. I mean, the ultimate tribute to summer. No, that that sounds like an amazing thing that I should have had some. It's well, <laughs> it's a it's a texture triple threat because you got the crunch from the meringue, you have that soft silkiness from the mascarpone, and then you've got the uh, you know, juicy fruit that just like has been macerated. It, it is it is one of the joys of summer baking. So this is the recipe that's in our July-August issue of the magazine. Is that right? Yes. And it uses halala vanilla, um, bean paste, and uh, extract. And it is essential. I, I mean, I, I have to say there's really no more intense flavor than getting really good quality vanilla bean paste from Hilala. It's just, it makes all the difference. Well, I need to make that soon too. It sounds like the perfect summer treat. Well, and I spied recently what you made, which was, I think it was some cookie bars. Oh yeah. So my friend Gobby Dalkin um, over at her blog, What's Gobby Cooking, posted her photo of these chocolate chip cheesecake cookie bars. And I knew the second I saw them that they had to be in my oven later that day. And that's exactly what I did. I had all the ingredients at home. So that was a big win. When you look at a when you look at a recipe and you see I have all of the things I need. I can bake these right now. Uh, so I immediately put the cream cheese out to soften and the butter as well so that within a few hours I had these amazing chocolate chip cheesecake cookie bars. So you make basically a chocolate chip cookie dough and then you make a cheesecake filling and you take half of the chocolate chip cookie dough and you press it into the bottom of a, a 13 by 9 baking pan and then you take the cheesecake filling and spread it on top. And then you take the last half of the chocolate chip cookie dough and you crumble it on top so that there's still room for the cheesecake filling to bake up between the the rest of your chocolate chip cookie dough. They are incredible. I could not get enough. You know, it. I feel like this is a common theme. I always talk about I can't get enough of these things. But, but when I find something that I love, I... I go all in and obsessively bake it, make it, and share it with family and friends. And Gobby really delivered with this recipe, so I, I, I can't say enough about it. <laughs> I guess it's gearing you up for Gobby's uh, cherry blondies we have in our issue recently. I think that that's going to be the next thing you're going to have to hit. Yeah, so Gobby was living between L.A. and Seattle for a while, and I used to live in Seattle, so I 
did not miss the chance to join her last summer for a few days in Seattle, and we went to Pike Place Market, the hub of produce, seafood, amazing artisan goods in Seattle, a true tourist and local destination that everyone should should visit. And Gabby and I kind of teamed up a little bit to bring some of our favorites uh, to the pages of Bake from Scratch magazine. That story is in our July-August issue, and Gabby took some of the amazing cherries that are available in the summertime in Seattle. She took them home and created this amazing blondie recipe, so that's next on my list. But but yeah, we uh, we had a lot of fun. So uh, any, any summer day in Seattle is amazing when the sun is shining, and uh, it's amazing. All right, let's get to the meat of this podcast. Yeah, so last week we talked with Amanda Faber, and this interview is like a part two of our Meta series on podcasting. Only this time we're talking to Amanda's co-host and partner in pastry, Jeremiah Bills. Jeremiah was also on the Great American Baking Show with Amanda, which is how they met. His baking is strongly influenced by his Portuguese heritage, so his specialty is pastisanada, malasades, and other Portuguese classics. So naturally, we invited Jeremiah onto the crumb to give us some insight into his world of Iberian baking and podcasting. Let's have our chat with Jeremiah. Hello, Jeremiah, and welcome to the crumb. Thank you for having me. We are so excited. It is so fun to chat with you. We had a conversation last week with Amanda, and we've kept you separate on purpose because we want to pick your brains separately. But I am going to start by saying that she had a lot of really, really great things to say about you because our very first question for her, and we're going to ask you the very same question about Amanda, (laughs) is what makes her the perfect yin to your yang? So she was excited (laughs) that she got to be the yang yesterday or in the recording. And so today you're the yang. And so now you both have to share that role, but you also share the role on your podcast. And she talked about how at her soul, in the core of her baking mind, she's peanut butter and jelly. And she described (laughs) you as a little bit more complicated at your baking core with an interest in complex breads and pastry. And and she's obviously solidly on team cake. So I want to get your thoughts on this. And she said she wasn't going to share any of her thoughts with you to prep you. So it's yours to take away and chat about Amanda. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny because the way we see ourselves, of course, I think is so different than how we potentially, um, how potentially how other people see us. And yes, Amanda, I I love that she has these, you know, the flavors of peanut butter and jelly and caramel and chocolate, like these simple flavors are definitely at her core. But I always see her as someone who's also very complex and her baking extremely intricate and, um, and so refined. So it's so funny. I see her a bit differently. And then I feel like that I'm a bit more simple, even though I like to make complex, <laughs> challenging things. But I feel like, you know, I don't, um, I love art and I have a very, I feel a very artistic sense, but I, it doesn't manifest in the way that Amanda does. So I'm always, it's so funny. We kind of, we, <laughs> we see that each is, other so yeah. differently. You know, and I think we all see that in each other the same way that, you know, you feel in your core kind of like, oh no, I'm not, I'm not high, I'm not a high maintenance baker or I'm not too complex. <laughs> but then the other person sees your, 
your baking and your expression of that art and and their thoughts are, wow, that's complex. It's a little bit more advanced. But I agree. I mean, I look at her cake work and I don't see, you know, simple PB&J style cake work. I see an artist at work. And I feel the same way about you as well. Um, So on the podcast Flower Hour, when you and Amanda are doing your thing, like Cal Grace and I are now, what makes Amanda the perfect other person sitting across from you on the podcast. So give us a little bit of that insight into what it's like in the podcast section of your friendship. It all goes back to our time on the Great American Baking Show. And her and I often had benches either in front of each other. Yeah, they were always either we were always behind each other or in front of each other. And during technical challenges where we were baking something, we had no idea what it was and the instructions were a bit vague. Her and I would really kind of talk the things together, probably to the annoyance of the production. But we, we've we always joked to this day that we basically share a brain. And especially when it comes to our podcast, um, we're always on the same page, which makes coordinating and planning such a breeze and so much fun. Um, but since that time, we, we really bonded together, noticing that, hey, we think very much the same. And then after the show, we were talking all the time and not just about baking, but about life. And I thought, oh, my gosh, why don't we have a podcast? We love talking about baking. We could talk to other people about baking. And it's also a great way. I knew we had projects we wanted to share with people um, in the future. And I thought this is a great way for us to do all of those things, talk to each other, talk to other people, and give light to some of our projects. It's, you know, it's so funny that uh, I feel like we're detectives and we separated you two to see if your stories were straight. <laughs> and I have to say, it's matching up. The alibis are matching up. It but, is. It's funny yeah. to hear the, the <laughs> same thoughts shared. So you really do share that brain. So now that we we've, we've, we've gotten to the core of that, you really do. So next time we can have <laughs> you both on together to, to, to collaborate in the, in the interview. So, so Jeremiah, you've now been podcasting for almost two years. You know, you... I mean, that's almost like 50 hours, I think, is what Amanda was talking about that you guys have put into this. What keeps you excited for interview after interview? Well, I was thinking about this, and you guys must feel the same way having a magazine dedicated to baking, is that I'm sure some people will look at it and be like, what else are you going to talk about? What other recipe can you publish? And it's endless. Like, literally, are there more Bundt cakes? Yes, there are millions. (laughs) Are there more things to talk about? Like, just... We we're starting to plan for season three, and I was someone wrote us and said, "Hey, do you have a croissant episode?" And I'm like, "Oh my god, we don't! I haven't even been thinking about laminated doughs recently, except for puff pastry. Like, we need to do a we need to do a Danish episode. We need to do a croissant episode. And croissants are so creative these days. It'd be so fun to have a pastry chef to talk about all those cool techniques. So, it's so endless. And then, I mean, obviously, some of our episodes are driven around the chef or the baker themselves. And that's always about stories. And sometimes we really don't talk that much about baking, but about life and creativity. And so I love that we kind of um, embrace different aspects around the humanity of baking. And that's that, that can go on forever, in my opinion. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, each person is different. Each story is different. And, uh, you know, the, depending on what their specialty is, it's amazing how one baker his experience is completely separate and different. And uh, their wisdom kind of just transfers over into a thousand different like particles. It just kind of becomes this, it's this universe and uh, the different kind of ways that it connects to each other. I think that that's part of the fun of it is just talking to these right. different, you know, people and they're 
um, expanding expanding your universe. That's kind of what each po- podcast episode does. And I right. love what you said about with the magazine and with your podcast and anything that we're all doing in this shared love of baking and in this global baking mm-hmm. community is you have people write in and say, hey, are you going to do a croissant episode? And, you know, we we publish a story about someone and get five emails saying, here's someone else you should meet. And I love that it is a, a community. It's community driven. We get our ideas from everyone. We share that common love of baking. And so just like you said, season three and beyond, and for us, you know, in four years of publishing Bake from Scratch, we've got so many more years ahead of us because the (laughs) ideas keep coming. And so I love that we're all tapping into um, that, that community. And then everyone talks about that joy and happiness that comes from our community. So it's such a happy place to be. Like, obviously we're going to, we're going to be here and grow in it for a long time. So I'm glad you're a part of our baking world too. Thank you. Oh, it's it's great to, for all of us to be connected. So speaking of the baking world, and you have a podcast, and now we do too, we want your wisdom. So if you could give <laughs> us any piece of advice for how we can brave the baking podcast realm, what would it be? I think, I think, let's see. Um, what, how, my best piece of advice would be to listen back to the episodes. And this comes from my training as a musician. And I think you, but listen back in the mind frame as a coach, not as someone like critiquing every single thing. Otherwise you can drive yourself a little bit mad, but just as like a supportive coach, listen back just to kind of get to see what sort of things you might want to change, but also just be brave, be yourselves. Don't try to be, don't try to please everyone. Um, and I think just have fun, follow your intuition. I think it will change over the years as you figure out what you like and what does, what works and what doesn't work. But I also feel like podcasting is so casual in the sense that it's really can evolve and grow over time. So just, I think just have fun, have fun just as you would trying recipes in a kitchen and see what works and what doesn't work. Mm, that's really nice. That's I, excellent. I, yeah. Especially because, uh, and, and everything you could use that positive, be a coach, don't be a critic, be a coach. Um, yes. You want to grow, not stifle the creativity by just being so negative. Exactly. So let's turn to you a little bit and your amazing, you know, Portuguese heritage forming your culinary and baking identity. You know, you you teach classes on Portuguese baking, and uh, it's a big part of your uh, baking blog and what you talk about on the podcast. You know, what is unique about Portuguese baking and what do you hope to share with your baking students and followers about this amazing culture? So I mean, I really believe you know, every person, every baker, every community, every family, and of course, every country has, you know, has their stories. And a lot of those stories in the culture, of course, as we know, is told through food. And sometimes those stories are, can be more riveting or more more um, exciting than reading the actual history books, or you're going to understand something about the people that you wouldn't have just by reading about them. And you know, Portugal at one time was the fir- it was the first global empire. I mean, it split the world with Spain at one point. And um, not that I'm saying that's a good thing, but mm-hmm. that's its history. And they were the first people to Asia. They were they were they had trading going on in India and Africa, and those ingredients. And that exchange with all these other cultures show up in their their food and in their desserts. And Portuguese desserts, there hasn't been a ton of innovation during certain parts of their history. So you can really eat things that 
are the same as they were in the 14 and 1500s. And those stories are still there around those desserts preserved. And a lot of them came from convents where during the time when Portugal was a world power, they had sugar pouring in from their colonies, Madeira and Brazil. And these convents were very wealthy and they would use egg whites to starch their, their habits and other linens in the churches or the monasteries. And they had all these egg yolks left over. And the Portuguese sentiment, no matter how rich or poor you are, is not to waste things. And so they had all these egg yolks and all this sugar and then local produce and then coconut and other things coming in, spices from other places around the world. And they would just play and have fun and create these amazing desserts all based on egg yolks and sugar. And this is very much what the continent of Portugal is about, Madeira and the Azor Islands. They kind of have a different, um, different flavor profile and different dessert histories. But that, that's kind of how the continent started. And so if you go to Portugal, you'll, their, their pastry cases will be like this amazing hue of different shades of orange and yellow because of all the yay, uh, all the all the eggs, all the eggs. <laughs> <laughs> trying to combine yellow and eggs at once. I do that all um, the time. Oh, gosh, my brain and my mouth. Yeah, they're not always coordinated. And um, so, and you know, so then Portugal kind of fell out of being a world power and other European countries kind of, you know, have, have had their time. And Portugal has been overlooked. It's kind of, it's the Western part of Europe that people usually skip. Until now, it's really having a moment. Tourism is an all-time high. And I think it's this undiscovered European gem um, full of rich food and stories and culture that will feel familiar when you go, when you taste these things, but they're also quite exotic. There's nowhere else I can think of that I've been in Europe where you're going to have these rich egg yolk dense based things, potentially with almonds and cinnamon and nutmeg and lemon. And it's, it's just very unique for a part of Europe that's so close to Spain and France. Um, so it's, it's, um, of course, very, very special to me and I, I'm excited that I can share, I'm going to be sharing these stories um, about my own family, about my travels and then the people that have been so generous with me to share their, their stories um, while I've been traveling in Portugal. Well, you certainly did impact my first visit to Portugal last year. I, I fell in love with not just Lisbon, but the Portuguese food and the people and the culture. And, and I cannot wait to go back and explore on a deeper level. I want to make it to the Azores. I want to explore as much as I possibly can. And obviously the most popular thing making, you know, headline news in the world around Portuguese pastry is the pasta stanada. And of course, I lined up for them. I followed your advice. I went to <laughs> the bakeries that you told me to go to. So I, I definitely am uh, following the travel guide of Jeremiah. But I want you to tell us, Apart from that number one thing that probably is becoming, I don't want to say over-commercialized, but people are definitely identifying it as the Portuguese pastry. Tell me what the under-known hero is that's not the pasta stanada. Oh, my goodness. And I like know you've got a list a mile long, so this is like definitely uh, a like dig deep for us, but... But something that, you know, that you would say, okay, go, you've, you've, you've gotten the most popular item. Now you've got to try this. So if I'm, if I'm in the continent, then I'm going to a, um, a city called Uvar. It's O-V-A-R. And they make this t- typical type of sponge cake. And this is called Pound de Law. 
and um, Bounda Law is made throughout the whole country, and it has many, many, many different variations, but it's always a base of eggs, sugar, and flour, and it's a sponge cake. And the one that they do in Ovar is so special, and when I had this cake, I mean, it was like meeting your soulmate. And so what it is is it's, it's probably a batter of, I would say, 80% egg yolks to 20% whites, it's, and then sugar is added to that, and that's beat on high speed for at least 20 minutes. In the olden days, they would do it by hand for wow. over an hour. Goodness. Until you, and so it's like making, you know, if you're making um, a genoise, you know, usually we beat for about like five minutes to get to ribbon stage. Well, you're going like 20 minutes, so like the sugar is completely <laughs> dissolved. You've really stabilized um, that, that foam structure. And then you're gently folding in the flour, and then it's going into terracotta or clay pots that are lined with paper but not parchment paper it's paper that's like i want to say computer paper but thicker than like artist paper that has no no nonstick surface so it's okay so it's poured into that so what that does is you have the insulation from the the terracotta and then you have the the paper that will actually support the sponge as it climbs up the sides of the the form and it's baked um the baking is super technical because what you're aiming for is Half of the cake will bake into a beautiful, like, cotton candy-like sponge. And the top will be, like, cooked custard. Like, it, you, ha you have to get it to 9 degrees Celsius, which is the, the temperature you want for creme anglaise. So you have, like, a creme anglaise top, sponge cake bottom. It's basically like an ancient lava cake or a self-saucing cake. Oh, wow. And um, so to get that baking, though, perfect. You don't overbake it. You don't get the top to be raw. Like, you know, the eggs are still raw. Or undercooked is super difficult and to imagine that nuns were doing this in wood-burning ovens just blows my mind but um once you cut into this cake it's just like it is i i can't explain it and you have that these two different textures creamy light spongy it's just it's pretty transcendental in my opinion <laughs> okay so i'm definitely here for this and i love that yes. you use the words and i can't describe it because i think in baking or in food, period, when we get to a state of, I can't describe it, there's the euphoria that we look for in amazing flavor and addicting textures and things yeah. that we we just can't get enough of. So you can't explain it, which means I've got to go find it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I will send you to the bakery that's wins the best cake of the year every year, and she's a good friend of mine, and they, oh my gosh, their production is just... She's a baker's baker. She, every, after every cake, she's writing down, like, how did it do? The temperatures, like, she's testing everything like a scientist. And I just love that so much. Well, speaking of your love for that so much, is this something we're going to be able to learn to bake in your new cookbook you're working on? Absolutely. And so I was really had this cute idea, like, okay, you can go get a flower pot to recreate the, you know, the traditional Portuguese form. And, but then I, I really struggled to find paper big enough that, you know, like printer paper or whatnot that would actually be able to line that form easily. And on Amazon, I was finding things, but I mean, you would have to spend quite a bit of money on the paper. So then uh, what I've done for a pastry pop-up um, I did uh, last year is that I took just ramekins. Ramekins are also ceramic, right? The same sort of heat. Um, they have the same properties as um, terracotta or, and, or clay. 
And I lined those with printer paper. I just cut them into squares. And the way, I mean, you could just shove the paper in there and get it to kind of kind of um, work. But I learned how to fold it properly. And, I'll, and I will definitely share that with them in my book. Um, and then, yes, from there, so you'd have little individual found the wall. And um, you get the same idea just with little tiny ones. So I think that's the way I'll do it for my book. I think it'll be really ap- approachable versus trying to get a flower pot to work. No, I think that's genius. So tell us more about the book. Is it all Portuguese? What's the what's your creative vision and where are you going with that? We're we're waiting with anticipation for this. So tell us about it. So I just signed with an agent, which is such an exciting moment because it means the project's getting more and more closer to the finish line. And um, she's really helped guide my vision for the book. She said, you know what? Anyone can Google a recipe these days. And there are such amazing databases. And if you speak Portuguese, you can pretty much get what you need. But what you can't get is the stories, you know, the stuff that comes from, you know, the artistic side of a writer. And um, she's like, what's going to make this book special are your stories and the stories that you've been told while you were there and from your family. And so that's kind of what will weave the book together. And also the idea of immigration. I mean, I'm the great grandson of this country. I'm a third generation. So like that has that there's something there about that. And it's interesting to talk to other people who, you know, how they relate to the, the country of their heritage, and then how food plays a role in that, because the food can kind of tell us things that maybe not just like, why did your family leave? You know, like, or why did they, when do you, why don't you go back? Like the food, I don't know. There's more there that's more about that, that I think is so fascinating, kind of a friction too, because I feel very Portuguese, but when I'm there, I feel like, okay, I'm not, I'm more American. So there's a friction there when you connect with your, the country of your heritage. But the book will be just desserts of, of the continent, of the Azores, of Madeira, I really want it to be comprehensive in the sense that it's all the big famous desserts and some surprises. I'm only adapting them really gently in the sense that I'm not doing any of my own twists. I might give you some like variations that I've been told or kind of a couple things that maybe I decided were really great variations, but I really want to be respectful. When you do something and you're going to call it traditional or tradition, yeah, traditional, you have to be careful because one traditional dish, as you guys know, can be made in so many different ways depending on the region. And I really want everyone to feel like their voice is being heard. Um, you know, as the community embraces my book, the Portuguese community, I want them to feel like I, I'm being respectful to them. So, you know, I'm only making changes based on like the, the, the um, you know, the, the baking vessels that we have available here in the U.S., the ingredients that we have. But also when I when I met with a dessert expert and historian in Portugal, she said, you are doing exactly what every immigrant has done. You took the recipes of your mother country. You know, for instance, there's a type of flan um, from the center, central Portugal that and those people went to Brazil very early on. Mm-hmm. And they make this flan with ground almonds because almonds are a huge part of Portuguese baking, especially in the south. But when, there's no almonds in Brazil. So they switched out the, the almonds for coconut. And that's how you have quindim which is a very, very traditional Brazilian dessert, but that stretches back to this old Portuguese dessert that used almonds. And she says, that, that is natural. That's the way food evolves. So, of course, these recipes will slightly evolve with my, my interpretations, but I really want you to feel like you're going to open this book and be able to taste Portugal without even being there. Well, and just out of curiosity, you've mentioned now the Azores and Madeira. You know, what's, how do those places kind of differ from the actual continent with 
the flavors? I mean, what are what are different about those desserts versus the continent Portugal? So Madeira is this beautiful. It's called the Pearl of the Atlantic. It's um, it's in cl- kind of close to Africa, and they are famous for their their molasses. They grow sugar cane there, and they have for centuries. And they make a type of cake called um, bol de mel, which means honey cake. But in Portuguese, honey can refer to sugarcane honey or molasses or, you know, the honey from bees. So this one, it's a yeasted cake made with lots of cr- dried and crystallized fruits. Um, and it's the yeasted portion of it. I mean, it takes three days to make. Um, it's a very slow making cake, but really rich with the molasses. Um, it, it also has a lot of spices. See, that's what you'll see a lot, I think, in the islands is um, this, the use of spice is a bit more strong because those, those um, boats that were are coming from the east would stop often in the Azores in Madeira before going back to Portugal. So they would get these spices first. Um, also in, in um, Madeira, they love passion fruit, as they do in the, the Azores. That's a very, very special fruit to Portugal. The first time I was there, I had like the national soda and the national flavors like is passion fruit. So mm, I'd never um. even tasted it before. And here I was, I mean, I'd never seen it in America and now you can find it, but you know, so the, the tropical flavors are popular there. So coconut and passion fruit, you'll find in a lot of desserts in Madeira. And then the Azores are kind of this cool outlier. They use a lot of chocolate, which is not traditional in Portugal, which is super odd because, of course, Spain and France were, were, were using it. And Portugal was going to all those same countries that had chocolate, but they just chose never to incorporate it. Here and there, you'll find a couple of things. But, for instance, my um, I've been getting some family recipes because my family's from the Azores. And one of them is this coconut flan where you... You make, um, you take all the egg yolks, you mix it with the coconut and dairy and bake that. And then you top it with um, a meringue that's mixed with lemon zest. And then the whole thing is covered in melted chocolate. So chocolate and lemon is a big uh, popular flavor in Portugal, which is, it's an odd combination, but so lovely. But then with the coconut, it's, it's so much fun. Um, that sounds incredible. I mean, you're, you're <laughs> yes. unlocking all these like secrets. I've never heard of half these things. And I, I just, I can't wait for your cookbook, honestly. <laughs> Thank you. And then we need a yeah. shot of the Jejinha. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Yes. I have the little chocolate cups. We could eat them like Willy Wonka. Yeah, yeah. that's what I loved so much was the chocolate cups with the Jejinha. Like just such an interesting cherry and chocolate combo with this very uh, Portuguese liqueur that is drank uh, just socially and as a part of everyday life in, in Portugal. I loved it. So I partook. I have a bottle on my bar at home. I, I reminisce about the time that I got to spend in Portugal. And, <laughs> and I know your book is going to take us there. And that's what I'm so excited about is your storytelling and in such a way that we're going to know your family, but also travel the Portuguese baking culture with you. And I think that's something you capture so beautifully in your uh, baking on social media and your website and just what you're bringing to the American home baker with that Portuguese uh, translation so that we can all partake as well. Thank you. It means a lot. All right. We could obviously dig deeper into the Portuguese uh, dessert world. (laughs) But we will go ahead and jump into the lightning round. 
So these will be very quick questions with hopefully some quick answers. I mean, everybody breaks the rules and they talk a little more. That's just, you know, rules were made to be broken. Here we are. So uh, are you ready for the lightning round? I'm so ready. Okay. If you could only bake one thing for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, the cake I talked about, Pound Wall de Ovar. Delicious. Done. I'm going to try yeah. it and maybe it would Done. be mine too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Finish this sentence. While you're baking, you're drinking. Wine. <laughs> same all uh, kinds all kinds alright I was about to say follow up red or white but if it's all kinds that's great and rose oh, champagne don't forget yes. champagne excuse yes. me yes yes <laughs> love alright malasadas or pastilla di nata oh you're really so you know malasadas are like we call them filoge in my family and I grew up with those so they're like you know like it's like a childhood thing but then pastilla di nata is like I mean, it's, I mean, it's like creme brulee wrapped in a croissant, you know, you can't, oh, I don't know if I could choose. <laughs> Probably the, the fish taste and not that. There's so many great textures going on. Sorry, grandma. <laughs> <laughs> you have 24 hours in Portugal. Where are you going and what are you eating? I am on the island of Fayal with my family. We're starting a meal with gin served in giant wine glasses. And my cousin is placing like, with tweezers, like a piece of star anise and a slice of like orange zest and pink peppercorns. And then they bring out something called um, um, krakish, which are barnacles that are, are, you have to dive for them. And they're like huge barnacles and you boil them in seawater and you pull them out and it tastes like the most decadent crab you've ever eaten. We're having morcella, which is blood sausage that's heavily spiced with like um, cinnamon and nutmeg and orange zest. It's almost sweet and savory. Um, we're having fish, the fayal, which are like cream puffs that are flavored with anise and filled with like a lemon pastry cream. We're having queijadas, which are little cheesecakes that are filled with fresh cheese and some that are filled with like um, dulce de leite, which is um, like caramelized um, condensed milk. And um, we're drinking a lot of good Portuguese wine. Okay, where's my invitation for this family <laughs> gathering? The summer, I'll be there. You come. Oh, man. It, it actually is in my head that we need to plan a baking retreat to Portugal and do it with you through your lens and join your family at the table for a true Portuguese experience. What do you oh, say? I would, I would, well, I'm there. Let's do it. Oh, I agree. That that was amazing. I thought no short answer was needed for that question. Yeah. I was hanging on for every word. I, I'm, I'm ready to be there. I can't wait. I, I don't know many people who can make barnacles sound enticing, <laughs> but that was, uh, that was good. Oh, that was great. Well, Jeremiah, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us on The Crumb. We are so happy you're a friend of Bake From Scratch and a fellow podcaster now. And I've been so fortunate to be on Flower Hour a few times. And and I, I love the baking community. I'm so happy you're a part of it. And, and just for you being on today, we appreciate you. And we can't wait for all that we're going to do in the future working together. Thank you. And I have to say a big thank you to you guys as well for almost every episode every episode, every, every issue, I feel like I find some sort of Portuguese thing in your, in your magazines. And it means so much to me and our community that we find ourselves represented in your, your magazine. It's just, it means so much. Oh, well, yeah. Ditto. And we just appreciate bakers like you 
showing the world that there's more to it than Pastisonata, which is amazing, <laughs> but it's there's just it's endless. It's it's a endless category to just keep deep diving. All right. Well, we'll see you soon, hopefully. And and if not, yes. I'll be walking up to that family dinner in Portugal. <laughs> oh, my God. My cousins will love you. You have no idea. Oh, good. I can't <laughs> wait. All right. Thanks, Jeremiah. Thank you. All right. All right, Kyle Grace. What an amazing chat we had with Jeremiah. And I don't know about you, but I'm already planning my return trip to Portugal. What do you say? Oh, yeah. And the Azores. I mean, got to be there yesterday. I honestly think we should really stay dedicated to the thought of planning a Portuguese baking retreat. And Jeremiah can join us and lead us to some of these amazing places. He obviously finds such inspiration with his family and flavors and just an amazing culinary destination that I cannot wait to explore more of and follow along as Jeremiah continues his explorations and most of all when he releases that amazing book it's going to be like holding on to his family's cherished cookbook I can already feel it so I know you're obviously inspired to be baking something Portuguese now but what else is inspiring you in the kitchen right now so you know I always think that finding new and interesting ways with different baking pans is it's a solution that bakers love and you know without saying it's a hack I think it is something that that we all should want to make use of the equipment in our kitchen. So in our July-August issue, we took the muffin tin and brought four new ways to use the muffin tin apart from making muffins and cupcakes. So we included an upside-down cake, we included a babka, and we turned that pan over and made some amazing... um, tart shells. So I am definitely going to be baking in the muffin tin soon. I need to pick my recipe that's going to be the first uh, the first of this new way with the muffin tin. You don't but, have to choose. You can do all four. And I likely will. <laughs> I, let, let's be honest. Once I get obsessed with this, I'm going to bake all four of these fun ways with the muffin tin. And uh, I hope our listeners will dive in as well and, and grab those recipes and, and join me for some muffin tin baking. It's just economical. And, you know, people do spring cleaning and they think they see some of these pans and they're like, do I even need this? I don't make muffins. Well, you don't have to make muffins. Right. There's like 455 things you could actually be making. Absolutely. What about you? So I used all those egg whites to make my pavlova. So I've got all these egg yolks left over. And one of the fun things we had in a recent issue was how to use up leftover egg yolks. And usually it's it's custard based because obviously that's what you make creamy, delicious uh, curds and custard. So I am tempted to make this amazing burnt lemon curd we've had featured before, which you just you char these lemons and caramelize them. And it just brings a kind of bitter note, sophisticated, because sometimes I think lemon curds can go to that saturated sweetness. And this one has that complexity that uh, just I don't know. It, it takes it to that adult level of sweets. <laughs> I mean, you know, so it's the good. The grown-up lemon curd. And then the other thing is we also had a, um, speaking of Portuguese and also Hawaiian favorites, uh, we had a malasades recipe with a passion fruit pastry cream from the cookbook, uh, the Hawaiian. Uh, the Aloha, Aloha Kitchen. Kitchen. The Aloha yeah. Kitchen. And it had such a delicious recipe in it. And I can't wait to like infuse some of that those fresh passion fruit into a pastry cream. Fluff it up. It's going to be good. Man, that does sound amazing. I can't wait to see what you do with it. Oh, it's, it's on the horizon. Well, all thank you again for tuning in. 
if you're enjoying these, please tell people and rate and review and subscribe and let us know what you want to hear. We would love to hear exactly what you want um, to have put into the podcast, who you want to hear from. And we're just here to give you an amazing baking experience because we love it and we love you. And we can't wait for our next episode. And in the meantime, though, I'll wish you all a happy baking weekend day or anything you have on your mind. We cannot wait to see what you bake. Please tag the bake feed in your photos and let us know if you were inspired by something you heard here on The Crumb. If you liked our podcast, please rate, subscribe, and tell a friend about us. To keep up with all of our baking endeavors, follow our editor-in-chief and co-host, Brian, on Instagram at Brian Hart Hoffman. You can follow Bake From Scratch on Instagram at The Bake Feed. For online recipes and fresh baking content, go to our website, bakefromscratch.com, and sign up for our newsletter, Preheat. Finally, for in-real-life baking inspiration, grab our magazine on newsstands, or subscribe through our website.